Hello. Well, my new book, 12 Rules for Leaders, The Foundation for Intentional Leadership, with contributions from Bradley Madigan, is out now on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and everywhere else you buy books. In this book, I address the 12 leadership areas that I have found leaders need to be the most intentional in to be the type of leader followers actually want to follow. From establishing a foundation of leading teams through managing conflict effectively, all the way through leading teams through change, knowing what to do and why to do it can help readers like you become better leaders in the real. 12 Rules for Leaders is a written continuation of the work I've been practically doing, leveraging the leadership training and development products and services of Leadership Toolbox all the way to leading keys. 12 Rules for Leaders represents a distillation of practical lessons I've learned, absorbed, and transmitted from training and developing 15,000 managers and supervisors over the last 10 years. Reading 12 Rules for Leaders and living it is like getting coaching from me directly without having to pay my full coaching rate. Look, this is a book written for all those leaders, some who call themselves managers and supervisors, who believe that their daily leadership decisions don't matter, or that their hard-won leadership positions are too innocuous and meaningless to matter much in the chaotic world of the now. 12 Rules for Leaders is the confirmation you are looking for that you are the leader for exactly the historical moment happening right now. Head on over to leadershiptoolbox.us and scroll down the homepage. Click on the Buy Now button and purchase in hardcover, paperback, and Kindle format on Amazon 12 Rules for Leaders, the Foundation for Intentional Leadership. And that's it for me. Out. All right, Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast, episode number 25 with Bradley Madigan in three, two, one. Hello, my name is Hassan Sorrells, and this is the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast, episode number 25, with our guest today, my co-contributor, Bradley Madigan. Hello, Bradley. How are you doing? I'm good, Hassan. How are you? Good. From the foreword to my third book, yeah, that's right, I'm reading my book on the podcast today because, well, that's what you do when you have a podcast. That's what you, that's one of the things, that's one of the privileges that you get is you get to read from your own writing. And so I'm going to hold this up for all of you who are watching out there. This is 12 Rules for Leaders, the Foundation for Intentional Leadership. From the foreword, Leadership. The active, intentional act of moving individuals and teams down an invisible path toward accomplishing a goal that may or may not matter emotionally to all of them is on the ropes. And maybe it always has been on the ropes. However, it seems that from the days of Marcus Aurelius, who wrote the world's first business motivational self-help leadership book, to the present day, when all manner of authors opine about different leadership approaches, leadership advice, or instruction, it seems to be suffering from several self-inflicted and other inflicted wounds, some of which include too many books, well over 60,000 results for leadership on Amazon, 
um, as it was searched during the writing of this book, with too many ideas based on what the author chooses to believe about research, insights, and attitudes that have personally witnessed, that they have personally witnessed, and then wanted to apply to others. Too many videos on YouTube, Vimeo, and other services designed to inspire and motivate based on the great man or great woman myth that cannot possibly be replicated by anyone other than the great man or great woman they originally came from, and maybe even they would not be capable of replicating the results if challenged. Too many leadership theories that are based more on idealism about how the world, i.e. the world of work, home, or community, should be, and anecdotal evidence rather than delivering on the hard truths about what does or does not work in the world outside the anecdotal and the ideal. Too many consultants, and yes, I am one, facilitators, yes, I am one, trainers, yes, I am one, and leadership development organizations, yes, I own one, committed to hawking their next cure for managers, supervisors, or executives' leadership problems. And we'll talk well about that one today. Too many software companies flooding the zone with apps, platforms, lines of code, or series of webinars that promise everything and deliver nothing to the end user who just wants their specific leadership problem solved. All of these solutions cause individuals, teams, organizations, and even cultures to flounder. Even worse, these factors propagate mediocre leadership in good times and in bad times promote and protect toxic leadership that leads to systemic organizational failures. And the average person, leader or follower, it doesn't matter, scratches their metaphorical head and wonders why nothing significant in their families, their teams, their communities ever changes for the better why our global and national body politics fail, and why any individual, much less any team, can seem to accomplish a goal, move down a path, or even get a victory without massive emotional and psychological struggle. After almost a decade of training, coaching, advising, mentoring, talking with, and even challenging senior and mid-level leaders across multiple enterprises, we believe that there are five core principles every leader, even the leader of their home, should work to dial in on intentionally and then back up with knowledge and skills gained from understanding 12 basic rules to be an effective leader. Be intentional with mindsets, thoughts, and behaviors to role model leadership effectively. Be engaged with the world internally and externally to be effective as a leader. Be able and willing to confront dysfunctional and destructive communication behaviors quickly and unequivocally on your team. Be empathetic with both the left and right brain by listening before speaking. Be ready to fail, sometimes spectacularly, when leading. These five principles merge to form our foundational assertion that intentional leadership, through understanding and applying the 12 rules of intentional leadership, is the way for leaders to pioneer people, teams, and organizations to the future we all want to experience. A future with hope and a promise for all. The motto of intentional leadership is no more accidents. Let's become more intentional together. That's from the foreword from my third book, uh, written with contributions from Bradley Madigan, who we will be talking to today. In thinking about the genesis of 12 Rules for Leaders, a lot of what we developed over the course of the last uh, eight to ten years has come about due to direct engagement, direct interaction, uh, direct action with uh, close to 15,000 managers and supervisors across 
multiple verticals in multiple companies. And all these managers and supervisors shared a number of different things in common. They shared a number of different needs in common. And the biggest thing they shared in common was a need to have practicality, a need to have tactics. Now, tactics are fine, and we could have written a book just full of tactics, and we'll talk about the structure of the book today, Bradley and I will, and how we, the genesis of how we put it together. We could have talked merely about tactics, but the real power in a book like this is that this book is not merely tactical. It is a book of doctrine, which is about your mindset, about what you should believe or what you can believe as a leader. It is about the bridge between doctrine and tactics, which is strategy, how to set up a plan, and even why to bother doing it. And chapter by chapter, rule by rule, all 12 of them, we lay out the reasons why these rules matter, and we link doctrine with strategy and tactics to give you something at 286 pages in paperback or 264 in hardcover with an illustrated version and a biblical version for all you Christian leaders coming by the end of this year to give you something that you can actually wrap your arms around, something you can actually do something with, which, interestingly enough, is what I say at the end of every single one of my trainings. Uh, Bradley's heard me say this before. Get out there and do something with the information that I've given you. Because it isn't enough to merely just sit around. It isn't enough merely to just absorb and consume. At the end of the day, you have to take action, direct action, if you actually want to be the leader that your family, your community, and ultimately even your workplace is calling you to be. And so with that, sort of as our opening, my opening monologue, such as it were, um, I'd like to welcome Bradley again to the podcast. And uh, Bradley, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about who you are and how you got to be connected with me? Sure. Thank you so much, Hassan. You know, it's great to be here and it's really great to see how amazing our book really came out. I think just to let the listeners know, I was actually a student of Hassan first at Binghamton University. Then I went to an, being a teaching assistant, moving on to being an intern for Hassan's company, human resources, consulting, and training. And then moving forward, I became a trainer as well as more or less in an organizational behaviorist to help understand more or less the trainings and structure of what Hassan has been teaching, cultivating, and working with all these mid-level and senior-level managers throughout his tenure at his company, which is really amazing because you get to see this book where after everything that he's done and continues to do, it's showing something so authentic and real that a lot of people still don't realize is part of every facet of leadership, especially in what's been happening in today's world. That authenticity piece, that that real piece, right? Um, that's something that you and I talked a lot about um, in sort of figuring out you know, what were the 12 things that we wanted to put, you know, as part of a leadership toolbox? Um, how did we want to structure it? Um, talk to me about why, or talk to us about why authenticity is important. Why is that critical for leaders to have? And what does authenticity actually mean? And, and here's another idea, sort of throw this at you too. Uh, and people say they want transparency, 
but then they say they want authenticity. And there's usually a gap between um, what people say they want from leadership, and we'll talk about that in just a minute, but a gap between what people say they want from leadership and what they'll actually accept. So how, let's talk a little bit about that authenticity piece when it came to putting the content together. And then how does that relate to leadership? Yeah, I think the real thing with the authenticity is how we portray it. Because when we're talking about authenticity, we're always talking about how do we come off? How does it feel from someone in a mid-level, senior level? How does it feel to be part of that team, that structure? And how will that influence how you are as a leader? And if you're not able to portray something where you're actually meaning and saying what you want and intend to do with whatever facet of leadership, then it's really up to you to figure that out. And when you're being inauthentic, you're really coming off as someone who's fake or how we say, you know, non-transparent. And as a result of that, you're having people who are not trusting you. You're having less of a teamwork dynamic. You're having more of, a, I would say, closer to a dictatorship of someone just telling you what to do. You're not listening to that open loop feedback and coming back and forth with one another. So you're not growing as a leader. You're just telling someone what to do. You're not giving them your intentions. You're kind of going away from the whole reason why we talk about leadership of how can we portray this and be open-minded enough to accept some things, especially what was said in the foreword about being able to fail, but being able to grow from that and beyond and be able to work with one another. And as we get closer and more into this dialogue, I think the real big thing is going to also be including the three C's, courage, candor, and clarity, because if you don't have any of those three, what you know what is the leadership that you're actually teaching or even showing the world yeah that's that's interesting because that's exactly where i went in rule one like i went right to three c's as you were talking you know um because there's a practical and we explore this in rule one and by the way each one of these rules um if you go and pick up a copy not if when you go and pick up a copy of 12 rules by the way available on amazon uh barnes and noble uh it's available as a as a kindle ebook um in all these various formats and there's an audiobook coming uh next year an audiobook version coming next year um <clears throat> chapter one rule number one you know we start off right at the beginning with this idea of what is a, what does leadership actually mean right and what are the roles of a leader what are the responsibilities of a leader and the first rule is that leaders are linchpins before they are anything else right um and we 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 tend to believe that leadership is one of those things that's particularly in an American context. I was talking with somebody about this the other day, but particularly in an American context, we tend to frame leadership in terms of everyone has a right to lead. <laughs> everyone has a responsibility to lead. Everyone must lead. And somehow if everyone doesn't lead, um, then someone will be voluntold to lead. And uh, in the great tradition of George Washington, and I'm, I'm a big fan of George Washington, but in the great tradition of George Washington, they will step up with their powdered wig and everything will work out. Um... <laughs> and we challenge those assumptions right in that first chapter, right? I mean, we come, we came right in and we hit those right in the in the face. Um, you know, we said everybody doesn't have a right to lead, and that's a real challenging statement right up front. Um, why doesn't everybody have a right to lead? Why why isn't it our God given right as Americans to be leaders? I mean, as you've, we've seen throughout history, we've seen here we have and 
sadly, you know, this is something that some people find hard to believe that some people are leaders and some people are followers. And but that's not a bad thing. That's just showing society at its best where you have people who know how to convey their thoughts and feelings transparently and being able to say, we can do this, be motivational, be inspirational, help guide these people along the way. And some who are just, they're good at being those pillars of support. They're good at being that foundation that help bring us to the next stage, the next level, bringing everyone to be the best they can be. But they're just not those people who want to, some don't want even want to tell people what to do. They just want to do their work. They just want to be those, you know, be a team player, be a person who just says, you know, I'm just going to do my job. I like what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. And if I have troubles, I know that I am able to go back and forth with the person in charge to make sure that I'm able to convey my thoughts and feelings to have that open dialogue. But what we oh, go right ahead. No, 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 no. I mean, that was one of the things I was going to say, you know, that was one of the things that we did, you know, during the time of us working closely together, um, both as well in all your roles, you know, I, at least I think that that was something that we did well, we went back and forth, you know, um, and I write in the book right here from page 16 in the book from rule number one, right? Um, <clears throat> The position of leader may be granted to some in the in their hierarchy, uh, referring to the hierarchy that folks uh, folks are in. However, the assertion that there is an inherent right to lead, whether that assertion is based on race, gender, socioeconomic status, or national origin, is irrelevant. It creates a slippery and tricky environment. It creates the circumstances that lead to the installation of bad leaders because it was their turn and they were not emotionally, psychologically, or spiritually prepared for the stress and strain of leadership or the installation of mediocre leaders uh, who are infinitely more toxic in their behavior and approach to leadership than even bad leaders are, and only rarely leads to the installation of good or even great leaders. Um, that, is, that is a punch in the mouth, right, to the American-centric idea of this, this whole concept of, you know, you have a right to lead. Um, as I've been sort of pushing the book around and mashing the book around and talking with folks about the book. Um, one of the things, one of the pieces of feedback that I've been getting, talk about having an open feedback loop, one of the pieces of feedback that I've been getting has been, okay, what about positional leaders? What about people who are in the hierarchy? Do they have a right to be there? Are you advocating the overthrow of the hierarchy? I don't think that that's what we're doing here. No, I don't think so either. And like, especially also on page 16, because I the book has really displayed it well, is especially in the last paragraph, the first line is what really I think people have to read. You know, everyone recognizes and seizes leadership opportunities. No, everyone does not. So that's when we really talk about the hierarchy, because some people are putting those because they've earned it. They've definitely earned it. Some are coming in straight, not knowing the culture, not knowing who these employees are or really the company's purpose, but they know that they like to be in that position of power. They, they know, or they believe that they can lead. And that's something where, no, we're not challenging the hierarchy. We're just saying that you gotta recognize that if you're in this position and you have to be open to do everything you can to be that intentional open leader, to be that linchpin. And if you're not, it's what are you doing? How can you seize that opportunity as that linchpin leader and if you're not you know what's you have to be aware being having that self-awareness of what's going on around you 
Because if you don't have that, then the whole hierarchy will crash down or you will have those internal fights, those internal discussions that you might not even be aware of because of all of these factors where you think that you are actually being a leader when you're not. Right. Yeah. No, that's, that's, yes, exactly. Um, and then that's where you get into the three C's and you get into sort of how do you establish clarity, which we talk about in the first chapter. Um, every leadership consultant <laughs> that I know, uh, every leadership training organization, uh, every motivational speaker has a system. And, uh, you know, we've been talking with folks about the book. And one of the things that I've said to folks is, yes, we have a system. It's the three C's methodology. We have a methodology. Um, you, you mentioned the clarity and the candor and the courage. Uh, those all link together in our methodology. Uh, clarity is about having clarity of thought, right? Um, having clarity of speech. And then, of course, that leading into clarity of behavior or clarity of action. Um, without clarity, a leader cannot lead. And, uh, you know, I was talking with somebody about this the other day, and I said, you know, if you are suffering from a mental health issue or from an emotional health issue or from a, a psychological or behavioral health issue of some type that is impacting your ability to think clearly, okay, what I'm saying is not for you, okay. But if you want to take on leadership and you have all those other factors going on, then your role, your very first task before you lead anybody is to get clarity in your thinking before anything else. Because if I'm following you, not only do I not know about your problems, I don't care about them. <laughs> and this ties into, well, and it's, 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 it's the thing that is the truth. And this ties into our last chapter, our last rule, where we talk about Pagliacci and compassion fatigue and sort of what does that mean and the clown who cries. But uh, we'll get there in a minute. But if I'm following you, if I'm following Bradley, if Bradley is on stage... And Bradley is saying something, right? And I fundamentally have no idea what's going on in Bradley's head until Bradley opens his mouth. Uh, I can't really do anything about the dynamics that are in his head. Only he can do something about that. Only I can do something about the dynamics that are in my head, right? To me, this seems like common sense. And yet so many people, so many leaders struggle with this. I think exactly that. Like, people really struggle with it. But I think it's not from the clarity stage. It's definitely clarity that leads into it. Mm -hmm. I think it's really the courage, the courage mm -hmm. to follow through with that, because you could have clarity of mind or you can be getting closer to the clarity that you want to have. Mm -hmm. But the courage of being able to step up, do it, or even take that leap is the hardest thing. And we're seeing that now, though, with our current state, where people where we're calling the great resignation is people are having the courage, not from speaking or being that leader or but being their individual self and saying, I'm not in a, I'm not in a place where the leaders are talking with me effectively or transparently or trusting in my values. And as such, I'm taking the courage up and trying to start it myself. Candor acts as the gas, as the, as the bridge between those two though, because <laughs> you can be clear and you can have courage, but if you can't actually say the thing that needs to be said, if you don't, not even that, if you don't know what the thing is to be said, and you are unable to actually, and this is where that candor arcs over between clarity and courage, right? If you if you are unable to kind of make that leap over, right? Because it's more than just having raw guts, right? We've seen we know what people with raw guts look like. We've seen the um, 
uh, the, I believe the phraseology is the crazy brave, right? <laughs> you know, we've seen those folks. Uh, I grew up around those folks. I'm sure you've had those folks in your life. People who are just taking stupid chances just all the time and just reacting, right? But we've also seen people who are eminently cautious, right? Who never take an action at all. Not because they don't think clearly, but because they, they, they overthink the action, right? So overthinking and underthinking, both those impact leadership behavior and impact individuals in general. But if I'm a manager or a supervisor, I need candor. Let's talk a little bit about that. What exactly, and you talk, let's frame it in terms of the great resignation. If my people are leaving and I can't hold them, what is the candid thing I need to be saying up the hierarchy? I mean, the that's where you have to even phrase the question is like what are we doing wrong why like what is being said or not being said mm -hmm. that's making these people want to leave yeah and that's the real question because right you know it's been salary it's been burnout it's been all of these different things people working through the pandemic and and realizing that they're not having a quality of life that they were or believe they're expected to have we were not expected to work nine to five every day for forever. And that's just the, the stereotypical nine to five. Of course, there's other people who are working way longer than that. Some people work shorter. But when we're talking about these people who are giving up their roles, especially mid-level leaders, it's something where the hierarchy says, what are we not providing? Mm -hmm. And what, what are we saying or what are we doing? That's turning these people off so much to the extent where they're saying, I'm done. Remember, I'm going to go to the real world with this. About six weeks ago, maybe, Apple's managers all got together and wrote a letter to Tim Cook. Because Tim was like, hey, the, the, the CEO of Apple. It's like, hey, everybody return to work and here's our return to office and here's our plan. And isn't it great? And, you know, pre-COVID, he would have gotten claps. Everybody would have lined up, gone right back to work. Instead, he received a letter from a bunch of disaffected engineers saying, uh, you know what? Cat's out of the bag there, Timmy. Uh, and yes, I did say Timmy. Cat's out of the bag, right? Uh, we are um, not going to be coming back to the office, and you can go pound sand. <laughs> Uh, this is, you talk about power a little bit. We do talk about power in the chapter on team building. Rule number four. Um, but the power is shifting, right? I mean, I, I, I can feel it moving. Now, will it move back? Jamie Dimon of Bank of America believes it'll move back. A bunch of these, these, and I'm, I'm going to make it generational, baby boomer executives believe that it will move back. Um, senior VPs of major organizations that you have heard of. I already said Bank of America and Apple. You can go Google or LinkedIn search for any of those other ones. Every single day I see a a story about some executive somewhere, like I think of someone about Howard Schultz today begging people to come back to work at Starbucks in the in the in the um, in the office positions. I think the cat's out of the bag now, um, and I think those senior VPs need to be asked, need to be getting clarity on, and not, and not just VPs but senior executives need to be getting clarity on the answer to this question, which is, for whom did the office always work? I mean, we had an office. We had an office in New York. It was a nice office, wasn't it? It was definitely a nice office. It was. I, I, good, I had hardwood floors, uh, had relatively decent furniture. Uh, we had like seven spaces. We had a studio. It was great. And March 2020 came and all that went. Out the door. 
out the door. What is a senior executive who's listening to this, who's like, oh, you people are wet behind the ears. You don't know what you're talking about. What do we say to him? Where does he have to get candid? And, and usually it is a he, by the way. Like, where does he have to get candid? Pache, my, my female listeners, I know, I know, I know. But really it is. It, it is a he. So how does he have to get candid? I think the candid part of it is really understanding that the employee has so many different layers. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're really seeing, especially in the book. It really shows the how a leader has to be able to understand that everyone is different mm-hmm. and everyone has these different facets. Mm-hmm. And if the senior leader doesn't understand, because now we're even seeing, we saw a rise in mental health benefits. We've mm-hmm. seen a rise in people needing some extra time and people trying to do four day work weeks. Mm-hmm. Still trying to get people in the office. We're seeing that people to be their most authentic selves and being able to work at over 110% productivity is to have their needs met. And when their needs are not being met or they're being played down, mm-hmm. then you're seeing what we're seeing right now, where there's lack, there's so many job openings, but no one wanting to be part of those jobs. That those leaders are saying, oh, we have an amazing company. Well, they're not practicing what they're preaching. Right. They're just saying they're just saying words. They're not showing with action and being able to convince people and actually show them that diversity matters, that mental health matters, that benefits matter to and that they need to feel like they're valued, especially valued. One of the things that uh, interesting you talk about value here, because one of the things that I told you. And I told a lot of other people, you know what I'm about to say. I mean, when you were working with me, I told you, you know, I'm going to ruin you for other people. Like, I just am. Like, I'm going to ruin you for other jobs. <laughs> and I've seen that with with employees that have come and have gone um, and who have wound up working other places. Um, and it's not because I was a nice guy or such a great leader. There were times I was not a nice guy. Uh, and there were times I was not a great leader, and I would beat myself up about that. Um, but it was about the... And it wasn't even about the size of the organization because we never got any bigger than like 25 people. Like we never got any bigger than that. But um, it was about sitting across the table from Bradley and going, what do you think? And then actually writing the things down that Bradley was thinking and then saying to Bradley, go do that thing, right? Go facilitate that that thing with a client or go and um, go and take this action that you want to take, right? It's, it was about giving uh, away that autonomy and giving away that power. Um, in order to, not for my own self-aggrandizement or for my own ego, although this seems like a very ego-driven statement, but it's not. It, it, at least I don't think it was about that. Was I wrong? Was it not? Was it, was it about that? Was, was it all about my ego? <laughs> am, I, am I totally completely wrong here? <laughs> I don't think so. I think it's like it's that mixture of being able to lead, but also having those who follow be able to lead in their own way. Right. And giving them that power, that you know, it's in a way it is freedom, you know, it's that freedom to be able to act upon what they preach, what they say, what they want to do. But then knowing that there's someone above you or someone in your corner mm-hmm. that can support you when you might not be going the right way mm-hmm. or you might not be able to clarify exactly what you want to do or what you want to actually go through with Yeah, and saying, 
even just saying, Kenley, no, you were wrong, or maybe not this way, but let's try it a different way. Yeah. Or how about this? And that was something, you know, especially with how we were creating the book and how well it came out was what do we want to say in the book mm-hmm. to these leaders to be linchpin leaders? And if they're being led astray or they think the book is leading them one way, how can we bring them back on that right path? Mm-hmm. From 12 Rules for Leaders, Rule 1, page 22, on being a linchpin leader. We've been talking about this. We're using this term, linchpin leader, linchpin leader. Let's define that for folks because people are going to be like, I don't know what that means. For leaders, what really matters to being an intentional leader is knowing what the role of leadership is in the system in which leaders happen to find themselves, and then coupling that knowledge with understanding the responsibilities and the depth of them the leader is tasked with upholding. Rarely is this role of leadership well-defined or even articulated. However, the role of leaders can be broken down into four categories. Originally defined in the book, Lynchpin, Are You Indispensable? by the marketer, author, blogger, and general ruckus maker, Seth Godin. A leader can be a bureaucrat, a leader can be a whiner, a leader can be a fundamentalist zealot, or a leader can be a linchpin. A bureaucratic leader is recognizable to everyone everywhere across time and space, from the realms of ancient Mesopotamia to the glittering steel buildings housing Silicon Valley's Wizards of Smart, there have always been bureaucrats. A bureaucratic leader does not have the passion for caring about her work. She shows up and does just enough to collect her check, go home, and begin to enjoy the things, the hobbies that really make her life tick and move. The trouble is, with time, she loses clarity on why she continues on as a bureaucrat. She knows she does what she is paid to do, and she is highly emotionally and psychologically aware of where the invisible line is of doing more in her work, and she is not going to cross that line, not for any external motivation in the world. Money and status are uninteresting to her because she knows the headaches of money and status do not lead to more power to make the kinds of changes she once wanted to see in the world. She believes in her heart of hearts that the power more status and higher income and fancier title brings are more of a challenge she is not passionate about failing at any longer. The challenges of shepherding people to their best selves despite the circumstances rather than because of them. A whiner leader is hidebound to the past. Politically motivated to always be dissatisfied with the now, but unable to make plans and execute intentionally to build a better tomorrow, the whiner cares about the past and how it was yesterday, but he is not going to put his shoulder to the wheel to attempt the work of turning the wheel back. Instead, he will stand in the road of progress, complaining about the people, the process, the decisions being made by other motivated leaders under him, but will not lift a finger to move out of the road. As leaders, whiners complain up and down the hierarchy, They are not respected, except as far as the context of their position allows them to be, and they typically are abandoned by their positional followers emotionally and materially the moment a better, more competent, and quieter leader is discovered. A fundamentalist leader is the same as a whiner leader, but the differences are she has a plan, she is passionate about it, and she is executing on it. All the while wrangling team members, followers, and audience members to her side. At the heart of the fundamentalist leader are their most attractive features. Talents of charisma, persuasion, and performance, particularly of spectacle. Fundamentalist leaders in religion, politics, the arts, and culture lead and perform very well to human standards. At least for a time. However, all passion fades. No one can be excited at a very high level for an extended period. Even basic biology will not allow it. And eventually, fundamentalist leaders fail, usually very hard, 
very fast and land even harder. Fundamentalist leaders meet everyone they stepped on, irritated, betrayed, and ignored on the way down the ladder of status and hierarchy. Their passions and zealotry about whatever process or idea they lead with convince them to climb. Their end is ignominious, unclever, and quiet. The last leader is a linchpin. This is a leader who understands internally that whining, zealotry, and bureaucracy are non-starters for leading people, changing culture, or influencing an organization. He understands that leading people involves both the sacred act of changing people and the mundane acts of small daily transactions of emotional labor. A linchpin leader renders himself indispensable to the organizational culture he serves, not by only doing what is expected, what a bureaucratic leader would do, not by bemoaning the arrival of what is unexpected, what a whiner leader would do, and not by doing what is flashy at the moment, what a fundamentalist leader would do. Instead, a linchpin leader renders himself indispensable to the organization by making the daily mundane work of leadership so intentional, culture-changing, and impact-driven that it would be a hassle to replace him in the structure. He performs this linchpin work intentionally, practically, slowly, and responsibly, focused more on his followers and their development than his advancement up the hierarchical chain or applause from a watching audience. Finally, a linchpin leader realizes that mediocre leadership is more toxic to the team, the organization, the culture, and the hierarchy than polarized leadership. Therefore, he works every day to make sure his leadership acts are polarizing and thus effective no matter who he is leading and no matter what context he is leading in. A leader who understands her role can be defined in one of these four ways and will be more intentional about choosing the strategies and tactics that will get her and her followers where she wants them to go. People have asked me very much about what does a linchpin leader mean? What does it actually mean to be indispensable? And people get hooked on this word indispensable as if somehow it means that a leader can't be thrown away. Everyone can be dispensed with. I could be dispensed with, Bradley could be dispensed with, any of our listeners could be dispensed with. Everyone has a sell-by date <laughs> or a shelf life, such as it were. For some of us, our shelf lives go all the way to the grave, and for some of us, it's significantly shorter than that. But everyone, on a long enough timeline, will be done, even a leader. Lynchpin leaders are not scared of being thrown away. They do the things that leadership requires of them, and then they do more because they want to make themselves and their work so valuable that it would be a hassle. And that's exactly the way to think about it. An absolute hassle to replace. The reason why people are, I think, fundamentally leaving in the Great Resignation, one of the reasons, I think, beyond just merely money and maybe, you know, being given permission, I think it's more of a case of people being given permission or being feel as though they've been granted permission now to go and take advantage of whatever this post-COVID world has to offer. Um, I think too many people didn't make their roles so valuable that it would be a hassle to replace them. They just didn't, they just didn't do that, right? Um, and that's not how we're taught to think from the time we're in school. I mean, we've, had, we've talked about mindsets. We talked about doctrine and belief systems. From the time you're in school until the time you show up to work, it's not how you're trained to think. And yet and still we say, hey, you will be a leader. 
And then we wonder why we get mediocre leadership or why we get toxic leadership. And a mediocre or toxic leader is not going to be thinking like a linchpin. No, they're not. They're going to be believing in their structure or they think they might have a certain belief that's different from where they're working, where they're at. And depending on where they are, it's going to change the whole mindset and how they're actually going to perform. Mm-hmm. That's why, especially when we talk about, you know, indispensability on page 112 in chapter five, you know, we're talking about high performing teams mm-hmm. and why some of them are so dispensable or indispensable is because of how their mindsets are and how they actually feel and think, oh, it's a hassle not to do what they want to do, go above and beyond, go and actually have those emotions being you know very not only happy in their roles but knowing that they can go above and beyond having permission to do certain things that other places might say no you can't do that mm-hmm. where it's why you know it's the big question of why why can't they do that right because it's procedural or because this and that it's not doing anything to the company heck it could even help the company or whatever you're in your business your sport your team your 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 studies whatever having that permission or that desirability is huge. Leaders, and I didn't put this idea in the book. This was one of the ideas that I left on the cutting room floor because it would have expanded the book too much. (laughs) But leadership is about enrollment. It's about getting people to enroll, right? Enroll on a team, um, enroll in a culture, enroll in an organization, enroll in an idea, enroll down a path right um when we think about school we don't think about enrollment right or or, well i I take that back when we think about higher education we think about enrollment but k through 12 is not about enrollment k through 12 is about you're told to go there by people who have authority over you typically your parents or some other guardian right uh you are put on this big yellow object to go away for eight hours a day to a box with other people who were also told to be there and got on the same yellow object you did. (laughs) And then you're told by a person who you've never met before, who has no relation to you whatsoever, that this, congratulations, you're now in a hierarchy and you're at the bottom. Yay! And you do this once every nine months, every year, for 12 years. And at the end of it, we will give you a piece of paper that says, congratulations, you have achieved something. But we don't actually define for you what you've achieved. When we think about the path, and we're going to talk about team building in just a second here, we're going to talk about chapter five. When we, when we think about the path for leaders, um, in looking at the book and in looking at what we, what we put together here, um, that idea from Godin of just, you know, being a linchpin leader and, or just being a linchpin period, but then applying that to leadership, um, why is role modeling important for this? Why does why is role modeling the kind of thing that we were like, no, this is the thing that we need to we need to focus around? Because we're seeing even now, whether it's a small company, big company, that if you don't have those people who have those ideas or that drive or that ability to lead, then you're going to replicate exactly what you're being you're being shown. Mm-hmm. And that can lead to bad productivity, bad mannerisms, the desire to leave work or not to be that person that you think you are meant to be because you're having someone in that hierarchy 
in that position of power or just someone who has that ability over you mm-hmm. to show you basically what not to do. Mm-hmm. And so when it comes to that and being a linchpin, or you're, you're, you're being able to be, and I'm going to bring it up again, really being self-aware of your surroundings, no matter whether it's not only yourself, those you're leading, or if you're a follower, those who are leading you, what are these qualities? What are these things that are happening around you that are causing these misunderstandings, this miscommunication? I mean, we talked about a little bit when you're saying you're female followers, but that's a big thing here too, is that when you're talking about leadership, leadership is not one gender, one nationality, one race. Leadership is the ability to understand those around you and help attain to a certain goal and potentially beyond that too. And making sure that everyone is being valued. And when you have teams or places where someone is showing you this role model or this bad thing that you don't understand, but you're going to, but some of you will just follow it because that's what you're being told to do. Like, like going to a school being told, Hey, you're going to go every single day, nine to three for 12 to 15 years, depending on where you are and getting an award for it. And then saying, no, I don't believe in that. Or no, like they didn't teach me this in this place because you weren't given the ability to think freely. You're, you're being given a structure that you don't necessarily want to follow, but you have to follow based on norms. Then it, you know, trip, you know, starts to drip into other places, especially it starts to drip when you're in a certain corporate structure, especially with big companies, mm-hmm. medium, bit large companies where you're being shown that this is the quote unquote way to do things when it could be destroying everything that you believe in, you've worked hard for, you know that it could be wrong. But because you're being shown as a role model, or you're saying that this is supposed to be the quote unquote role model that you're supposed to follow it starts to just have a negative connotation yeah yeah speaking of teams basically <laughs> let's let's go to chapter five rule number five my most controversially titled rule people don't like being referred to they don't like being compared to what i make people comparison to in here but the comparison works and that's why even though people are upset with it they recognize its truths rule number five leaders cannot always build a maserati out of toyota parts page 95 in the paperback version of 12 rules for leaders every leader wants a sports car that costs as much as a sedan Professional jealousy, organizational envy, and industry covetousness blind many leaders in their team-building efforts and invariably lie at the heart of many team-building failures leaders continually experience. Leaders want the sports car of a high-performing team that gains an award in their industry or even outside of their industry, but they do not want to put in the work to build their own sports car. Or even worse, they seek to apply the principles of a high-performance vehicle to the reality of a sedan. These failures come about because leadership in many organizations and leaders generalize external to lift context from the individual examples of leadership success in team building they read about in the particulars of their own, or read about to the particulars of their own situation. In other words, they seek to shove a square peg into a round hole. 
And let us be even more honest, many leaders, when confronted with the task of rebuilding a team broken by mistrust, communication dysfunction, false conflict, which can look and feel real, but is merely a convenient distraction from the hard work of confronting and eliminating bad behavior on the team, lack of accountability, and little to no results shrink at the prospect of such a rebuild effort. This is because it takes time, effort, and a good dose of the apocryphal blood, sweat, and tears to rebuild a wreck sedan, much less transform it into a sports car the organizational hierarchy and shareholders may lust after, but may not want to get their hands dirty in making. There is only one Jack Welch or IBM per industry. The other factor that creates the conditions of difficulty for leaders when building a team is two factors, actually, that link together inexorably, diversity and difficult people. There is no doubt a diversity of individuals on a team creates a diversity of opinions, perspectives, and approaches to performance, results, goals, and accountability. It's not only diversity of country of origin, race, creed, or culture, but also diversity of mindset, which can create the environment where people are not compliant or obedient and many times cannot be coerced or convinced to become so. It is clear from a wealth of research that collaboration and trust are the two factors that combine to ensure high performance among a collection of individuals. However, there is a little remarked upon transition that has happened in the global culture, driven partially by the rise of democratic societies in the form of formerly totalitarian parts of the world and the rise of access to information, data, and entertainment in the parts of the world that have long since historically adopted democratic norms, however imperfectly. And this transition can best be summed up in an analogy to games, specifically the sports of American football and American baseball. Now, I'm not going to read through all of that. You can read through those comparisons. Um, but want to visit on page 99 and 100 the list of what we're looking for. Because leaders very often will say, okay, yeah, I don't want to... I, I have all these uh, people that are that are here in this organization, and they're not top shelf face on. Uh, uh, I don't have uh, I don't have A players, right? I don't uh, I don't have Maserati parts. I got sedan parts, <laughs> and uh, I got to build a I got to build a uh, Maserati out of these sedan parts. What am I looking for here? What are the areas upon which I need to focus? Well, on high performing teams. There's a high level of tolerance of ambiguity. We see this for on Rule 5 on page 99. Uh, there is responsibility and accountability. There's independence and interdependence. There's goal orientation, self-awareness, resilience, appreciation of differences, and tolerance of ambiguity. These are the areas. These are the um, traits. These are the such as it were, the, uh, the seven things that you're looking for, seven qualities you're looking for in a, um, in a team player. Um, my personal favorite um, is tolerance for ambiguity because I think if you can get one of those, pretty much everything else falls into place and you cannot get tolerance of amb for ambiguity without having a good dose of responsibility, accountability, independence and interdependence, goal orientation, self-awareness, resilience, and appreciation of differences. Um, what's your favorite one out of that list, by the way? I have to say it'd probably be accountability and responsibility out of mm -hmm. all of them. That and self-awareness. I feel like when I when I think about tolerance of ambiguity, I'm thinking of whether the, someone is forcing the ambiguity onto you mm -hmm. or if it's naturally a result. Okay. 
But when it comes to accountability and responsibility, especially nowadays, it's how much are you able to accomplish and how much are you able to actually say, I'm responsible for this, or you have to be accountable. You know, you're saying this to me, or you're saying this to someone else. You're, you're a leader saying this to a follower. Are you actually going to follow through with this? Are you going to actually take action and say, you know, I'm going to do this, or I'm going to say this, or I'm going to work with you on this. And if this doesn't happen, then we have to figure out another way. Not Mm -hmm. if this doesn't happen, it disappears into a fog Mm -hmm. and you just can't find it or it doesn't come back up or something falls through. And then you say, oh, it's not me. It was that person over there. Right. It was not, you know, it wasn't me. It was that team member who he said this, he did this. He's the one who caused this thing to happen. It's their fault. Yeah. It's the finger pointing and the blame gaming. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's really where you see it, especially nowadays where it's like, and I've seen this a lot too, where it's, especially with a hierarchy where someone in a senior level and there's definitely conflict, Mm -hmm. they're not listening to the newer people. They're not, they're not being accountable for saying that person's under me. They're listening to someone else who's been there years longer and has the experience, but it doesn't mean that they're right. Right. It's just that they have been there longer, not that they're correct. And that's right. where you really see the responsibility and accountability going in opposite directions. In opposite directions. Well, speaking of responsibility and accountability, rule number nine, <laughs> on page 178, you know, leaders avoid the blame credit trap, right? Um, many leaders feel the pursuit, page 178, many leaders feel the pursuit of accountability is the same journey the adventurer, the adventure hero Indiana Jones was on when he was searching for the Holy Grail. And indeed, accountability for many leaders is the Holy Grail of leadership. However, as with many leadership concepts, leaders have accountability conceptualized in the wrong way. And then from that misconception, leaders move forward, making mistake after mistake in their pursuit of accountability in others. There are three main problems leaders have when they pursue accountability work with their teams. The first problem is the lack of clear definition of what they want their followers to be accountable for. The second problem is failing to make clear the difference between responsibility and accountability so the follower can successfully navigate what is required of them. The author Seth Godin writes about the difference between accountability and responsibility. Yes, he does rear his head twice in this book. And he describes the difference in this way. Accountability is done to you. Emphasis mine. It's done by the industrial system, by those that want to create blame. Responsibility is done by you. It's voluntary. You can take as much of it as you want. Leaders may disagree with Godin's conceptualization, but it makes clear the difference between responsibility and accountability for leaders. The third problem lies in leaders failing to be clear with themselves about what emotional fuel is driving their pursuit of accountability in others, whether that is avoiding blame or taking credit. Heavy stuff. I talk about coaching and mentoring in this chapter. Um, and then, of course, we, we end with ownership. This was the most difficult chapter uh, for me to write. Um, not because of the content of the chapter, but because... I had to put in order a whole bunch of crowded ideas together 
that overlap, right? So I just separate them, put them in order, and then put the whole thing back together. Kind of like trying to build a car. <laughs> you know, you can look at a car engine and go, well, that's an engine. And then you just raise, you just lift your hands and you just walk away. You're like, I don't know. It's too much, right? Um, but then you've got people who have mechanical mind. And I, I used to refer to myself as a mechanic of human nature. And what a good mechanic does, or I'm, I'm, I'm actually going down the road of carpentry now. I'm learning carpentry. What a good carpenter does, right? Or, you know, I'm on this path of jiu-jitsu, right, right now. What a good jiu-jitsu player does is you, <clears throat> you blow everything up and you pop it out, kind of like Tom Cruise in Minority Report, right? You, you spread it out or Iron Man. When he's putting together the, uh, in the Iron Man outfit. They peel the movies, right? <laughs> when he's putting together the Iron Man outfit in Iron Man 1, right? He explodes everything out, right? You show an exploded view so you can see all the component parts. And then you say, that's out, that's out, that's out, that's out, that's out. And I want this, 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 and this. And bring me together the... Con- the, 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 the heart, basically. The heart. Exactly. Bring the whole thing together for me. And is this going to work? Yes or no? Simple yes or no. And that's what happened in this chapter. Um... Because we go from describing the difference between accountability and responsibility to trying to figure out why the blame game is so popular. Um, Then we talk about the Oz principle and getting results through individual and organizational accountability. Um, How to use coaching as a tool to get accountability. And coaching and supervision and mentoring are all different things. They're not not the same thing. and then reversing the Pareto principle, which I'm not going to talk about that. And you can read the book. And then how do we get to ownership from there? This created a really, this was a really difficult chapter to um, to write because most people, most leaders, because leaders are people, most people are driven by either avoiding blame or by taking credit. Um the 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 avoidance of pain or the pursuit of pleasure those are the two most basic things that human beings are driven by you said that you were seeing this in senior leadership in your organization we've been very careful to 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 protect bradley's organization here we're going to continue to do so um, as we have this conversation and, and contextualize um bradley's authorship but bradley does work for you know an organization not mine, but um, an organization. And without naming names or throwing people under the bus, you've seen that struggle, right? Between, you've seen that struggle in, in defining what accountability and responsibility is and how to determine ownership. You've seen it in real time, right? Yeah. I mean, sometimes I've seen it in my organization that, you know, that I work for, but I've seen it even in the past when I was a student or when I was, you know, in a, you know, interning at another mm-hmm. organization, I was really seeing that, that there wasn't enough accountability or responsibility for certain actions or that someone's actually giving credit or trying to give credit or a piece of the credit in order to absolve them of the lack of responsibility or accountability kind of almost like a reward for not doing what they were supposed to do. And I'm not saying that was in my organization per se, even now, but that's something I definitely have observed. And, you know, you can't always change it because like we were saying before, hierarchy is still 
one of the most or the most common thing you'll see in an organization today where if someone's been there for, you know, 25, 30 years or even at least 10 years, then versus someone else who's only been there for one year, six months, Mm -hmm. five years, you really don't, you don't, you feel like you don't have the power because they don't really want to have that open dialogue because they don't want to believe you because they've been so stuck in their ways for a long time or have had that role model that has showed them this way and they don't want us and they say, oh, I'm open to opinions, but they're really not because they don't want to change, but they're open to just hearing you out, which is just half of the conversation. It just becomes a whole nother he said, she said type of scenario Mm -hmm. where you're not getting the results you want or being heard, but you're not being dismissed either, which is you're in that gray area. Yeah. Yeah. We talk about the art and science of feedback and discipline in rule 10, which goes right along with rule nine. (laughs) So discipline, feedback, accountability, ownership, they all kind of go together. At the end of each one of these chapters, um, we have practical tips. This is the tactics part. We, We list five practical tips for leaders that they can do something with right now. You know, um, and so in at the end of rule nine uh, about growing accountability, tip number one, avoid the blame credit trap. Tip number two, do not ignore history, but do not become encumbered by it. Tip number three, recognize that all humans fall into the victim cycle, but leaders get out of the cycle sooner and with less damage. Tip number four, it all starts with you. And tip number five, responsibility is about autonomy and agency. Accountability is often about coercion and force. So each one of these tips is tactical at the end of each one of these, um, at the end of each one of these chapters. Um, and it does demand something of the reader. It does demand something of you um, when you are when you are looking at it, when you are engaging with it. We close. And I'm going to skip to the end here. We, we close with this idea of adapting to change. That's rule number 11. And then rule number 12, leaders take the time away to avoid becoming Pagliacci. Um, this, was a, this was maybe the second most difficult chapter, probably the one I gave the shortest shrift to. And I probably really shouldn't have. I feel like I should have given more in there. Um, particularly in an era of mental health issues. And I read about this in our, my introduction. Um, you know, it's really hard to write a leadership book in light of COVID. Uh, it's really hard to write a leadership book in, in light of everything that has happened with the Great Resignation because you run the risk of making it either too time sensitive and too temporal specific, or you wind up having to go in the direction of timelessness, and then it looks like maybe you might be tone deaf to history that's happening right now. So I I don't necessarily think that I did a great job of straddling that line. I think you have to make a decision, and I think we we opted for timelessness. We do mention COVID, um, but the compassion fatigue chapter, but it's not the dominant driving narrative of of the book. Um, But compassion fatigue there at the end, you're seeing more and more calls for mental health help, you know, in organizations and in cultures. Uh, When you talk to younger workers, um, one of the things that they indicate, or one of the, not things, one of the services or one of the one of the benefits they indicate that they would like to see from employers um, and one of the acknowledgments they indicate that they would like to see from leaders is an acknowledgement of their mental health, um, an acknowledgement of a need to 
navigate burnout and uh, to to walk through compassion fatigue. Um, if leaders aren't used to hearing this kind of language coming from people, because maybe they came from a time, you know, maybe they came from a time, the time I came from, right? I'm, a, I'm, I'm the youngest end of the oldest suck it up buttercup generation. I am. I'm, a, I'm at the youngest end of that generation, right? Um, Bradley, you're a generation younger than I am. <laughs> um, you know, you're, you're seeing different things in that space. What is a leader, you know, to do when they hear these calls that they've never heard before for, hey, there's compassion fatigue, hey, there's secondary trauma, hey, there's vicarious trauma, um, hey, I need more empathy from you, um, hey, I'm going to quit if you don't give me enough time off. Um, we talk about psychological safety in the book. You know, I'm, I'm, I suspect there will probably be an OSHA for white collar workers within the next 20 to 25 years because these things take time. But I do suspect because all the, all the little pieces are there in a federal government uh, at a federal government and at various state governments, but mostly at a federal government regulatory level, right? I believe leaders should be ahead of regulation because government's always a late mover. You and I have talked about this. Government's always a laggard. It just is. Uh, my apologies to all my folks who are in civil bureaucracy, but government's always a laggard. <laughs> um, so what do you do with these calls if you're a leader, if you're hearing this? And if you've never... If no one ever gave a damn about you as a leader and your mental health, right? If you were told, go home and have another couple glasses of bourbon, it'll be fine. Like, what do you do with those kinds of appeals? I think this is really where you see what makes a leader. Because okay. you have to maybe even have an open forum. Or, in my opinion, try those resources yourself or try something to go out of your comfort zone, because if you never had it as a leader, then it's understandable where you have those feelings of, well, if I didn't need it, neither do you. Right. But it's now the growing age of, well, now you need it. And so does that other person and that other person and that other person, but I never needed it. Well, maybe it's the realization of maybe I did. I just never had that system. Hmm. And when you didn't have that system, maybe you would have, become a better leader. Maybe you would have had something or you would have figured out something a lot sooner. Mm -hmm. And maybe trying those resources would help you even become a more compassionate leader or a more see-through leader that can actually drive that change. And that's why that why our book is so influential is because you're given that place to really kind of tear off that Band-Aid mm -hmm. and trying to maybe put a new one on or try a different way of doing something that you've been so complacent with and that you never tried before. I mean, that's really what happened with the pandemic is we never expected it to happen. Now it's in it. And now things are changing. Yes. Some things maybe stay the same, but some things also came to light that people are realizing like, Oh, this needs to be done differently or, Oh, I have rights or, Oh, I'm not happy. Mm -hmm. And I'm okay, and it's okay not to be happy because now I know that there I need to find something to help fix no not fix but change it make mm -hmm. me feel better or improve upon what I currently have in order to make it so not only me but everyone else around me has those benefits too. I always I always think of uh, Twitter. Weirdly enough, when we have these conversations, and. Uh, <clears throat> thinking about doing a follow-up book, 12 Rules for Followers. 
<laughs> foundation for intentional followership because there was just so much stuff we left on the ground that uh that would be applicable to um to followers um but um one of the ways in which i think about that is you know i think about my grandmother who died in her 80s you know after uh after a stroke and then you know she lived a little a little while past that and then and then she uh, she passed away um but i think often of my grandma in twitter right like i think my grandma would have bought if my grandma had had twitter or if your grandma had had twitter they would have bought stuff off of twitter and so if we had had and here's the parallel if we had had a robust mental health system for leaders in the 70s and 80s in the 60s and 50s in the 30s and 40s in the in, you know they would have taken advantage of that they weren't any less mentally debilitated or more mentally debilitated than we were it's just were the resources there or were they not there to, to Bradley's point and if the resources had been there they would have taken advantage of them so I think one of the th important things to note about calls for mental health help um, appeals to compassion fatigue and empathy or not empathy but compassion fatigue and secondary trauma and burnout is uh, is that eventually those people are going to be leaders themselves and people who are burned out now people who are experiencing compassion fatigue will eventually be leaders themselves and they need to be able to pass along uh, to pay forward the benefits of the, that psychological rest to their future followers as well which um i always frame it this way in my head anyway and i don't know if this helps bradley or not but i frame it this way in my head i have a five-year-old who lives in my house so it's it's incumbent on Bradley to become a better leader, because <laughs> one day my five year old might be working for you. You know, <laughs> like that's just I, I have no idea. Life is long, right? And people make a lot of different decisions, right? And so we're setting up the world for the future. I think with um, with this book, I always close these podcasts because then we're rounding the corner here. It's about time for us to to end it was a short conversation because i do want you to go out and pick up the book 12 rules for leaders <clears throat> the foundation of intentional leadership uh once again co-written uh with my contributor bradley madigan i want you to go out and grab a copy of that book um grab two copies right grab a copy for you grab a copy for a leader that you know go through these rules highlight it really dig into the book there's plenty of resources in the back um we pulled from literally everywhere that you could possibly imagine um and it's all annotated uh and uh and and uh and dilated or you can wait for the couple of other editions that are coming out um we're gonna have a workbook also that's going to be coming out um potentially next year to go along a companion workbook to go along with uh with the book um and we're gonna be talking about it more on this podcast and relating each one of the rules to things that you will see in literature things that you will see in uh the world of cultural entertainment and cultural art because reading and understanding literature is sometimes better than trying to read and understand yet another business book even mine <laughs> so bradley any final thoughts for folks 
um, around staying on the path. We usually do a wrap up towards the end of the podcast. So any thoughts on staying on the path for folks of leadership? What would you tell folks who are listening out there about remaining uh, on the leadership path? I think that, and people say all the time and people think it's, it's really overused, but you know, leadership is an experience. It's always a learning experience. You're, you have to continuously be learning. And I definitely, you know, of course we're name dropping the book because the book really does pave a path for leaders and reading it really gives you a different perspective on what leadership really is and how to apply it. And it's so important because as times are changing, so are our ways of how we have to be a leader. We have to do some stuff that's different than what's been done in the past. You know, mental health is now on the rise. People finally believe they have the power to do things. Diversity is at the top of our minds, especially with everything that's going on. And being being a leader in this time is an amazing feeling, but it's also, it's a challenging road. And being able to use the book as a foundation to really make yourself into a leader in the 21st century, and especially right now in 2022, is such an important task that I recommend everyone to just pick up the book, read it, ask us for questions or for training if needed, and really just understand that we're in this together. You're not supposed to be alone in this, but as a leader, you got to continuously learn and understand that you have to be open-minded. In thinking about staying on the path, I would like to add supplement to what Bradley has just said here. Um, If your title is manager and supervisor, I want to talk to you directly. And you're listening to me right now, no matter what organization you're in, public, private, for-profit, not-for-profit, massive corporation, small bodega on the corner, I don't care. I don't care if you are a leader in India or in Brazil or in Canada. I don't care if you're a leader here in the United States of America or listening to me in Japan or Australia. We are experiencing a global moment, and I want you to pay attention to me very closely. I've said this before in private conversations to folks, but I think it's about time to get it on record. The path is being trodden in leadership today, right now, and conceivably for the next 25 years, I suspect, not by people with position, not by people with elite titles. See, here's something that you need to understand if you're listening to me. The people in corporations, the people in government, the people in entertainment, the people in higher education, in whatever country you are living in listening to me, whatever state, province, municipality, or principality you may happen to be listening to me in, the people in those places who have set themselves at the top of the hierarchy, who are making proclamations and calling themselves leaders, have absolutely zero clue what's going on. Trust me, they don't know. And I want each one of you out there whose title is manager and supervisor, who believes that maybe or suspects maybe in your heart that your decisions don't really matter, 
I want to encourage you. I want to edify you. I want to raise you up. And I want to tell you that I wrote this book for you. I wrote this book because you do need a bridge between the belief system you have half formed in your head and the tactics you halfway sometimes execute on when you're not being reactive. This book exists to get you out of that reactivity, but it also exists to give you a tool. See, I don't know if you know the story of Lord of the Rings, if you're listening to me, and if you don't, that's fine. Go ahead and read it or watch it, or you can watch any other type of epic drama if you would like, but I really relate to this one in this example because we are hobbits, and the people in power don't really think too much of us. And yet, the ring of the future, the ring of power, such as it were, is now being entrusted to us. I see this every day. I see evidence of this every day. More and more people, to paraphrase from the Matrix, waking up to the idea that they have power, that they are actually in control, and that the people who think they're running things don't actually have a clue. Now, there's a couple of different ways that can go. We can descend into anarchy and chaos with every man for himself, as was once said in an ancient book. You can go check out that one, too. Or we can do something a little bit different. We can look around at our own homes, our own houses, our own families, our own backyards. We can figure out where are the places where we need to lead the small, innocuous places where we believe our decisions may not matter. And we can choose intentionally to act in those places every day. Act as a leader in your home first. A leader with your family. Heck, even if you're leading your dog around, be a leader. I don't care whether you've got one person, no people, or multiplicity of people living in your house. Lead in your house first. Then write things down, take notes, note what works and what doesn't, note where you're growing and where you may need help. Then when you go to work, you'll see the same things. You'll see improvements. You'll see places where responsibility is just laying around and no one's taking advantage of it. Your language will change from, I wouldn't do that if you paid me to, Yes, I will go ahead and do that, whether you pay me or not. You won't resign, maybe, but you will see that the toxicity and that the change of that toxicity can actually be done by you. And then guess what? When that manager or supervisor comes along to you and asks you, what the hell are you doing or who the hell do you think you are? You can say quietly, and winsomely and without any anger or hatred in your voice or in your tone i am the leader you should have been now please get out of my way and let me lead or you can help me and pick up this mantle and we can walk up this mountain together more so than resigning we need this kind of challenge in our organizations and cultures and right now is the historical moment Right now, you have been born at exactly the right time, in exactly the right place, at exactly the right historical moment. The hobbits will win the day. But they have to believe it. Otherwise, 
the dragon eats everything. And who wants that? I want to thank Bradley for coming on the podcast, giving us his valuable time, uh, giving us his valuable insights. Uh, What are some places folks can follow you? How can we get in touch with you? How can we connect with you to stay on the path? What are some ways we can reach out to you? Best ways to reach out to me is LinkedIn. I'm a big LinkedIn proponent. Facebook, if you want as well. Do not have a YouTube yet. Thinking about that in the future. But for right now, LinkedIn is the way to go, of course, as well as going directly to you, Hayson, just to see if they want to have us as the tag team duo to help them figure out what's their next best step. But if they ever want to reach out, they know where to find me. Awesome. We will have links to Bradley's LinkedIn below the player, uh, both in the video podcast and the video version of this podcast, and of course on the audio. So click on that link, go connect with Bradley um, on LinkedIn. And of course, you will. there will be links there to connect with me and HSCT Publishing and all of the work that we do in all the various places in which we do it to help the hobbits get on the path and stay on the path to beat the dragon. Once again, thank you, Bradley, for coming on, and thank you for listening today. And with that, we're out. Listen and subscribe to the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast on all the major podcast players that you listen to, including iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and of course, Spotify. And leave a five-star review if you like the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast. Look, we need those reviews to grow, and it's the easiest way that you can help us actually grow this show. And of course, tell all your friends. If you want to get started down the leadership path, uh, our products from HSCT Publishing can help you and your team do that. So check out our training webinars, our coaching services, and more at leadershiptoolbox.us. And check out our video-based subscription service at leadingkeys.com. We've got books that will help you and your team grow. So pick up a copy today of My Boss Doesn't Care, 100 Essays on Disrupting Your Workplace by Disrupting Your Boss. And subscribe to the Little Red podcast we launched earlier this year with the same name as this Little Red book, My Boss Doesn't Care. 100 Essays on Disrupting Your Workplace by Disrupting Your Boss. And of course, pick up my most recent book, 12 Rules for Leaders, The Foundation of Intentional Leadership, written with Bradley Madigan. You're going to want to pick up a copy of that in April 2022. And you can get both of these books in paperback, hardcover, or as ebooks on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, and any other place you order books on demand. Finally, We are on YouTube, or I'm on YouTube, or someone around here is on YouTube. So like and subscribe to the video version of the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast on the HSCT Publishing channel on YouTube. Just search for HSCT Publishing on YouTube and hit the subscribe button to get updates every single time we upload a new video, which we do that at least once a week. And subscribe to the Hassan Sorrells Presents Audio Experience podcast Yes, I have three podcasts on YouTube where I talk more casually with a wider range of people 
all about all matters that matter in the world today. Everything from fatherhood to criminal justice, Christianity to artificial intelligence. We cover the entire plethora of things that are floating around in my mind, and that's why it's called an audio experience. All right, well, that's it for me. Out. <laughs>